Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, we process the horror that is the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy and his mixed record. Plus, we talk to Dahlia Lithwick about how we got here and what the future of the Supreme Court looks like. And as always, we implore you to vote, donate, get out to the midterm elections. Hey, Ann Friedman, how's it going? Uh, yeah, that um, that's fair. That's fair. I feel like we should uh, give some of the backstory about this week's episode, which is that we were going to record something that was like kind of lighter and more fun because we needed a break from the news. Uh, and then we had a technical malfunction, so we had to pause. And then during the pause, Justice Kennedy retired. And so we're Literally back. Literally <laughs> during the pause, Justice Kennedy retired. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of set in motion, this fight over the future of the Supreme Court. And it's giving, you know, y'all's terrible president a chance to put another very conservative person on the court and really put a conservative stamp on the American legal system for generations. <laughs> really. I, I don't know why I'm laughing because I'm honestly like depressed and dejected about this. I'm, I'm someone who also has that impulse sometimes where I laugh when something horrible happens or I find myself grinning when there's bad news just because I don't know what it is. Like when my body doesn't compute an emotion or the depth of an emotion, it just like reaches into the grab bag. And I'm like, why am I laughing? I know. I think sometimes the laugh is like a weird like spin on a cry, you know, where yeah. I'm like, it just all of it feels, all of it feels bad. Well, so anyway, Justice Kennedy is only 81 years old, which in like justice years, he like owed us at least nine more years, to be fair. Right. Um, you know, he he is a conservative, but he's been like a very critical swing vote for some of the super polarized issues, namely like gay rights, abortion, death penalty. And, and in those issues, he's like he's voted with us on voting rights, on gun control measures and on you unions, know, like, on yeah. racial discrimination. Right. Yeah. Campaign spending by, you know, corporations. He has been on the wrong side of history. But nonetheless, this is very, very, very troubling. Yeah, and and I feel like it's sort of hard to talk about how devastating this decision was without also talking about a lot of the Supreme Court decisions that are coming down during this term. Namely, the fact that this court has upheld Trump's Muslim travel ban, and um, with the case is called Trump v. Hawaii. And basically, like, the conservatives on the court were like, yeah, sure, this started as like a racially or religiously motivated law, but they can justify it for some national security reasons, so we're cool with it. Like, you know, basically it sets it up so that like this administration can do anything it wants that's like on its face discriminatory as long as they find some kind of back-end justification that isn't we're horrible bigots. Like that is that is essentially what the majority, which Justice Kennedy joined, had to say about that. Oh. Um, 
We will link to uh, Sotomayor's dissent, which actually quotes Trump's tweets and proving that, like, actually, no, this is totally motivated by discrimination. And she actually said, quote, the full record paints a harrowing picture, which like, yes, thank you for grasping the magnitude of the situation. I just, you know, this is one of those things where you're like, yes, elections have consequences. And this is a, you know, this is a huge consequence of that. This president has the chance to appoint like, like at least three Supreme Court justices. And that would swing the court like very, 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 very much to the right. Yeah. Um, Maybe this is a good opportunity to kick it over to Dahlia Lithwick, who is Slate's jurisprudence correspondent, um, currently working on a book. So was like supposed to be taking some chill time, but like, alas, there is no chill time during this presidency. I know. A legal, (sighs) a legal icon. Legal, legal icon Dahlia Lithwick. I, um, I talked to her last night, the dark night of many of our souls. Uh, and I apologize in advance for my interview questions because they're basically just like, Dahlia, what do we do? I'm just like crying and screaming on the phone. And she has some, uh, I don't want to say it's tough love because her job is reality. She has some tough realities for us all to absorb. Dahlia, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today. Of course. Okay. I don't really know. I was thinking about what a first question for you would be, but like, is it appropriate to panic? Is like what I'm feeling right now. And I just, I feel like <laughs> I need to ask you as an expert. Um, I, I mean, I think in my sober moments today, I thought, A, we knew he was going. We thought he was going last year. We kind of suspected he would. I mean, this was not a huge surprise. It was not like unexpected. And B, and I think this is actually important, he did nothing to help the court's liberal wing this year. In other words, if he had just handed down a really complicated parsing of the travel ban that like gave real, you know, credit to the arguments on the side of the refugees and the migrants, I would be the first person to be panicking. But I I think it's pretty clear, and I think the data supports this, that in every single 5-4 case this year, he voted with the court's conservatives. He just came off a two-day stretch where he voted in horrifying 5-4 splits to kneecap public sector unions, to uphold Donald Trump's, you know, unbelievably, you know, damaging travel ban, and to really, I think, profoundly harm women in California, you know, by doing away with a kind of truth in advertising law around crisis pregnancy centers. So in some ways, it's less horrifying only because I think he really has made clear that to the extent that we ever thought of him as gettable or as, you know, someone on the fence or, you know, we like to pretend he's this swing voter who, you know, goes one way or another, that that was never statistically true. He was a very conservative justice who occasionally and important cases tacked left. But I, I think this term, he made it really clear that if he was going to pick a side, it was not going to be on the side of progressive values. And so to that extent, you know, it's bad because there are a lot of 
doctrines that are now in trouble, but we are not losing a Sandra Day O'Connor. We are not losing a David Souter. We are losing somebody who almost unerringly voted with the conservative bloc, and this term unerringly voted with the conservative bloc. I hate to say that that makes me feel better <laughs> because it doesn't in, a, in, you know, in the grand sense, but like, so, so essentially this narrative that he was the fulcrum or whatever, some kind of center balancing voice on the court. Was that just a pack of lies or has like his role shifted considerably in recent years? Like what, was it ever fair to characterize him that way? I don't think so. I think uh, I wrote about this a little bit just in the hours uh, after he stepped down on Wednesday. And I said, there's a famous study that Richard Posner did a few years ago. He's a judge on the Seventh Circuit. He was a judge on the Seventh Circuit. He um, was at University of Chicago. And he did this pretty, I think, persuasive study of every single jurist who's been appointed to the Supreme Court in the last hundred years. So since the FDR era, he, you know, one of the alarming things that he found is that at the time, I think was published a few years ago before Justice Scalia died, but he said, you know, four of the most conservative justices to be appointed in the last four years uh, were sitting on the court. Uh, and, and Anthony Kennedy was ranked 10. <laughs> so he's like the 10th most conservative person to be on the court uh, uh, since the New Deal. And I think it helps uh, give some perspective to the extent to which this was a really, really conservative person who kind of took over that mantle of swing justice when Sandra Day O'Connor stepped down. She was, I think, authentically a swing justice. I mean, I think she was somebody who was very much in play, you know, couldn't predict her votes. I think she was certainly appointed by Reagan, but she tended to vote with the liberal wing on, you know, campaign finance and reproductive rights and, you know, in issue after, you know, religious freedom. Time and time again, she voted with the liberals. Kennedy wasn't that. Kennedy, you know, he was more like a tourist to the left. <laughs> uh, he overwhelmingly voted with the court on, you know, don't forget, on Citizens United, on Bush v. Gore, on Heller, the gun case, on Shelby County, the case that, uh, you know, ended the Voting Rights Act for all intents and purposes. So this was not somebody who was a centrist. This was somebody who was very much a conservative Republican. And on some very important, and I don't want to downplay those issues, you know, including notably, you know, uh, gay rights and gay marriage in Obergefell and in Lawrence versus Texas before that, um, in preserving the core holding of Roe in Casey, and then again in Whole Women's Health, in some really important criminal issues about cruel and unusual punishment, executing juveniles, affirmative action. So there were places where he would swing away from that rock-ribbed Republican, you know, predictable vote and vote with the liberals. That will be a grievous loss. But I don't think it's fair to say that this is somebody who was in play. You know, you couldn't tell what he was going to do. He was pretty consistently Republican. And again, as I said, if that was ever in doubt, that was certainly proven uh, this term where in every 5-4 case, he voted with the conservatives. He never tacked left. He just gave the president more or less a blank check 
to do whatever he wants to as long as it's deemed national security, uh, you know, voted in a horrifying case to permanently damage, I think, the funding mechanism for public sector unions. So I think to call him somebody who is at the center is to really misperceive what the center is. It's a better, I think, analysis to say, you know, John Roberts now will become the center of the court. And again, he is one of the most conservative jurists we've seen in modern history. So it tells you more about what the center is than it tells you about Anthony Kennedy. Okay, now I'm depressed again. Um, Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) No, I don't. Listen, you're not here to make me feel better. You're here to tell me what's happening. So given everything you've just said about the, the reality of the role that Justice Kennedy played, is it... Is it sort of the best case scenario to think, okay, it's going to be someone no matter what who is extremely conservative, but best we can hope is that they tack left in a few key ways or in at least one or on a, one or two issues? Or like, how are you kind of thinking about the best case scenario for who could fill that seat? Or what should we be hoping for? Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm going to make you sad again. I, I'm not sure there's a best case scenario. You know, Donald Trump, ran for election with a, a list of people that he promised. The one thing he promised was that they would, every one of them, overturn Roe. Now, at, at one level, that's just fanciful and silly. He doesn't have, you know, blood oaths from them. But he certainly promised that that would be his litmus test. And then he put forward a list. And he, you know, as of November of last year, November of 2017, we had a list of 25 people, and apparently he is convinced, and I have no reason to doubt him, every single one of those people is gunning for Roe. Now, if you look at that list, it's a really fascinating list. It's produced largely by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. This is not, you know, what I thought, which was Trump being like, hmm, should I go with Omarosa or, you know, <laughs> Judge Janine? Like, he really, he farmed this out to competent interest groups who have been thinking about this for decades. And there are people, by the way, on the list, I think the youngest person is 37. So you're going to you know, see people who serve for life. But I think he is pretty confident. And, you know, certainly the voters who put him into office are pretty confident that because he is pledged to pick someone from that list, these are vetted by the Republican, you know, establishment. And I think the one other thing I might say is that there's been a war cry in the kind of conservative legal movement that goes basically no more suitors. Like we will never tolerate another David Souter. Don't forget David Souter, nominated by a Republican, gets on the court and leaves the court one of the most liberal members of the court. Same is true of John Paul Stevens. So there is a feeling, I think, among Republicans that they get worked. You know, they, they put up people and they drift to the left. And one of the reasons that Harriet Myers, you may remember, uh, when George W. Bush wanted her to come on the court, it wasn't liberals who blocked her. It was movement conservatives who said, no, she might drift. And so there is, to the extent that there is a real litmus test for for who gets vetted and who gets put up, it's people who aren't going to move. And Democrats, rightly or wrongly, don't have that kind of laser focus. You know, if if anybody as moderate as Elena Kagan, if anybody as moderate as Stephen Breyer comes on the court, we will hobble them from ever being 
uh, uh, nominated. There just isn't that sense of towing the line. And so I think, uh, you know, it's that sort of line when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. I think he's showed you the list. He has promised that these are two or one uh, rock rib Republicans who are not going to drift to the left. And I think that it's fanciful to think that John Roberts will drift to the left. And so I, I think it's probably very safe to say that we are going to see someone like Antonis Scalia or Clarence Thomas. That's what's been promised and held out. I, I think that's what we are going to get put before us. Okay, I'm, I'm absorbing that. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, know. I know it, but also, you know, to hear it laid out is like, you know, those are two different things. And also, I think there's something going on with this news coming this week on the heels of so many, as you rightly pointed out, devastating decisions to those of us who care about justice and equality that made this feel different than maybe it would have on another week or at a different moment. I don't know if you felt that way. No, I mean, I think, you know, most of us were, you know, gasping for air after the travel ban decision came down. And then again, you know, the public sector unions decision, um, it really did feel as though, you know, that was and I think will be one of the most consequential decisions of our, you know, generation in terms of all but ending uh, the, you know, the, 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 the force and power of public sector unions and, and arguably all unions in the future. These are staggering cases and they come in the wake of just a raft of really devastating decisions on voting rights. I mean, we, I don't think, have ever had a term that uh, is worse on voting, uh, is worse on, you know, mandatory arbitration agreements. It's just nothing good has happened. And so I think you're quite right that I, I, for one, when the term ended and it was only <laughs> that we'd ended public sector unions and, you know, casually overturned a 40-year-old precedent to do so, I was like, okay, well, at least we can regroup and organize. And then, you know, a few hours later to have the news that the seat that was at least theoretically in some capacity capable of moving on occasion was going to be given to another Neil Gorsuch. No, it's gobsmacking. And it's almost that feeling that you have just generally at this moment that things can't get harder. They can't get worse. They can't, you know, remember only like three days ago, trying to just integrate what was happening at the border and thinking about, you know, these 2000 children who might never be reunified. And that was almost beyond one's capacity to take in. And then here we are. <laughs> you know, just a few days later. And it's, I mean, we're looking at, I think, possibly decades of kind of Lochner style regulations that are going to make it impossible for anybody but plutocrats to survive in America. It is, it is chilling. And you're right, it's almost, it's almost too hard to take in. I mean, people can be absolutely forgiven for, you know, just giving up and getting a mani-pedi and just like finding some way to take this in and breathe. It's, it's a lot. Okay. For those of us who like to strategize over our mani-pedis or whatever it is that relaxes us, um, I'm curious if like, you know, this is this is just a multi-decade electoral politics game at this point, wherein like the courts are 
Like, that's just going to be how it is. We should all accept it. We should expect nothing but the kinds of decisions that we've seen this term. That is what it is. We're now working on kind of, um, our producer, Gina Delvac, likes to say geologic time instead of, like, the current news cycle. Is that where your head is? Is that where my head should be? I I, I mean, a couple of things. I I, I think, you know, and this is where I'm going to sound grumpy, but I'm going to say it. I think progressives completely and utterly failed in 2016 to message around the courts, to talk about the courts, to support Merrick Garland, who, by the way, (laughs) would not have voted with the conservatives in this raft Mm -hmm. of really horrendous cases in the last couple of weeks. There were Republican senators in Senate races who were openly promising that if Hillary Clinton won the presidency, they would keep that seat open, the Scalia seat, as they called it, for eight years. They messaged it. They sold it. They promised it. They had no shame. We can see that, you know, Mitch McConnell walking around with pictures of himself and Gorsuch and this stolen seat, which he crows about as his greatest accomplishment. And the response from Democrats, really both in the Senate and the House, and I think at some level, even the White House, was just to be like, wow, I sure hope someone cares about the court in 2016. And and we didn't. We didn't. And by every exit poll I've seen, by almost a two-to-one margin, people who prioritized the court voted for Donald Trump. And he would say at his rallies, he would say, you have no choice but to vote for me because I'm going to give you the court. And he did it. And so I think the real lesson And this isn't to say like all the third party voters and all the, you know, people who stayed home or said they weren't inspired by Hillary are to blame for this. Um, But I think we're all to blame because we completely and utterly failed to communicate that there was an open court seat, that it would have been a a, a generations long shift to take a Scalia seat and give it to a Democrat Oh, and by the way, we had an 83-year-old, an 80-year-old, and a 78-year-old also on the court. And the complete seeding of that discussion and conversation to Republicans is kind of what came home to roost. So I think, you know, Mitch McConnell stole a seat. We didn't squawk. They put up Neil Gorsuch. Progressives sort of said, well, you know, that was a shocking and harrowing you know, crime scene to have that seat stolen, but oh well, and, you know, proceeded to allow Gorsuch to to be seated. And now we're in a situation where I think that unless Democrats realize that, and by the way, Republicans have a 40-year jump on organizing around the court and messaging around the court, but I think unless Democrats figure out some way to think about the court as the single most dispositive, Determinative issue, whether you care about workers' rights or the environment or women's rights or LGBTQ rights or, you know, the rights of immigrants and how they're treated, whatever it is, there's a straight line between that and the courts and the abject failure to think about that in 2016 got us here. And so I think we now have four months to get to the November elections and try to figure out how to get people who care about all the things that the court has dismembered in the last few weeks and months to be energized around that. And, you know, I don't know how to say it better than 
there is no doubt in my mind that whoever replaces Anthony Kennedy is going to spell out the end of Roe v. Wade. Now, it can happen any number of ways, but it can happen. And that means that any woman who is thinking about reproductive freedom, or even I would say contraception, because that's the new target, and who isn't organizing around the November elections, I think is just really, really, you know, going to put us back in the situation we were in in 2016, where we voted without fully reckoning with the ways in which not just the Supreme Court, Donald Trump took the Oval Office with 150-some federal lifetime judicial seats, which he is filling at record breakneck pace. So I think to just understand that the Senate matters and it profoundly matters. And the fact that Mitch McConnell essentially stole a seat from Barack Obama really matters. And to try to figure out what it's going to look like to respond to that, I think that is the work right now. And I don't know what it looks like. I'm not a political organizer, but I think as a journalist, I can say that to just give away a second seat uh, because we didn't quite know what we wanted to say about it would be really, really, I think, uh, the death knell of so many of the legal doctrines that exist to protect the poor and to protect minorities and to protect women and to protect the disabled. So it's I, I just can't convey how high the stakes are. And if this could wake us up, to the reality that the courts matter almost more than anything, then I think we have to wake up and figure out what that looks like. Dahlia, thank you so much for sharing this rallying cry slash hard news slash important news and uh, for spending a little time with me tonight. I know you're in the midst of it, so I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that does not make me feel better. Yeah, elections have consequences, it turns out. And the thing that she said about like essentially conservatives making the court of paramount importance while progressives have not done the same is is really going to stick with me for a long time. You know, all of those people, all of the like butter emails or type people, like the, the inability of the left to kind of say, actually at the end of the day, courts are super, super important and affect all of these issues. Like, her point is well taken. And I'm just like, how is this? Maybe this will change going into the future. But it's like not in our lifetimes. You know what I'm saying? Not but right. The attitude, I guess I meant the attitude's going to change, not the court makeup, but the attitude might change as a result of this. I don't. Yeah. These Supremes be living like 100 years. Oh. Well, you know, we did get some good news this week. Let's not, like, you know, 
just be depressed and wallow all the time. But hit me. Here in the great state of New York, we've had some women like win some pretty incredible races, some Democratic primaries. So, namely, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez won her primary against a man who has been like Democratic establishment forever. And it's like, it's very heartening. She's 28 years old. And she, like, wiped the floor with him. The video of her um, seeing that she won for the first time, or at least the the video that the internet labeled her seeing that she won for the first time. Yeah, it's like she saw how big the gap was. Right. And I, it's truly, I watched it on loop um, as, like, you know, a (laughs) soul-soothing mechanism so many times this week. Yeah, Yeah. because she is the future. Like she is the she is exactly what the Democratic Party should be like celebrating and elevating and being like, yes, yes, yes. This is where our resources are. I know. Well, you know, like she beat Joe Crowley, who's like number four Democrat. And like everybody thought was going to, you know, he's like going to replace Nancy Pelosi. And the thing that's been really shitty about it is how like you can tell that the Democrat establishment is not happy. Like Pelosi in her statement, like the statement was like a hundred words, like praising Joe Crowley and what a great politician he had been. And then like eight words of like, uh, congratulations to Miss Ocasio-Cortez. And it's like, uh, like you people do not get it. You certainly don't get it. She didn't get any support from Emily's list, you know, which is. Or coverage in any like, you know, major media. I mean, there was a lot of commentary on the day of her victory about how the New York Times was like, huh, who is she? Like, he didn't show up to debate her. He sent a surrogate. No one, no one took her seriously except clearly the voters. Right. And here's the thing. It's like not seeing her coming is the equivalent of not seeing Trump coming when he came. It's so unfortunate how all of these forces really collide to suppress, like, these super progressive messages, you know, between the media and the establishment, Democrats, and all of that stuff. But so I'm super excited that she's won. She was, like, a bartender not too long ago. And it's cool to see so many working class people getting into politics and truly saying, like, we can do this. And also, like, we're going to wipe the floor with these, like these people who have been here forever and are doing politics as usual. Politics as usual cannot work when we're literally at war for our souls. Right. And and I think, too, like this idea that, um, you know, she and candidates like her also reflect, like, who has historically been the Democratic Party's core voting base. Like, why shouldn't your representatives demographically and politically reflect the people who are reliably voting for your party. Like, yes, like, finally, let's get that into alignment. And I think, like, that is another reason this is so hopeful, because I'm like, all right, how many of these victories have to happen without your support before you get on board and say, like, huh, actually, the people whose votes we've relied on historically would also make really great, like, politicians and governing members of our of our party. Right. And part of, you know, the story in the 14th District of New York that is exciting is that This is, like, Joe Crowley had not been primaried in, I don't know, like, 14 years. Never faced uh, any kind of of contender. And in order for the primary to happen, the opposing campaign had to put her name on the ballot. And that took, like, thousands of names. And so Mm -hmm. people, like, the ground game is working. Like, that made me feel... It made me feel that even the fact that they were having an election at all, a primary at all, meant that things were moving in the right direction and that people were paying attention. 
And so all that needs to happen is that we need to keep this energy (laughs) all over the country. And that seems exhausting. It does. But I think, I mean, there's a few things. We've talked a lot about some of the organizations that are doing the work of identifying candidates like the, the exact type of like base core women, women of color, people whose views actually like align with with ours, not just like people who are kind of hanging out in Congress for decades and decades. A lot of people are doing the work of identifying those candidates and also doing the work of identifying candidates in districts that maybe the party establishment has not identified as flippable or gettable. And um, and I think that like that for me is is a comfort, right? Like I don't have to research every like promising district and state level candidate in Virginia and Arizona and Nevada and New York, wherever um, places where I don't live, I can through one of these organizations donate to them and they distribute it, or I can like kind of read profiles. I mean, we've had the sister district folks on the podcast before, but they do a great job of saying like, okay, you are in Los Angeles. We've assigned you these three races, really get invested in, you know, Katie Muth in Virginia, like give her your dollars. Like these are her views. And, you know, I mean, one of the things about, I know we talked to, we talked to Amanda Lippman at run for something. A lot of the people who in the wake of 2016 were like, there has to be a better pipeline. Um, have identified it. Like, it's there. Um, and we'll we'll link to these places. But, like, being able to do and plan fundraisers with your community for candidates that are either in your backyard or further away who, like, you really believe in and want to see elected as part of this new wave is, like, that is where my heart and head is because, you know, there's nothing I can do about the court right now. I know. You're so right. I just signed up to start volunteering with Indivisible and... I am, no joke, I'm thinking about joining uh, Democratic Socialists. So we'll see. Oh my God, what? I know. I'm I like can't doing, you're telling. I, I I'm like doing my research right now. I want to know if it's like a viable <laughs> option for me and how I feel about it. It seems like very bro-y, but uh, there are like a lot of women that I respect are in DSA. So I'm like, I'm going to do my research. But so it is like, this is how serious I've gotten. Wow, are you joining Rose Emoji Twitter? Uh, I'm joining Rose Emoji Twitter. If Rose Emoji Twitter is where freedom <laughs> is, like, I'm going there. I'm just teasing you. I know, but, I like, mean, this is, like, how serious it is, where I'm just like, ugh, you know I'm not a joiner, but, like, you got to be a joiner in these times. Oh, completely. It's funny. So uh, I have, like, a running text thread with a few other friends who also enjoy savory cocktails. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, a really, like... Talk about like the the proliferating joys of the group the group ch- like chat right like you can have a dedicated group chat for like literally anything and um, anything you want and a few weeks ago I sent them a photo of an amazing savory cocktail I was enjoying and uh, and then there was a whole back and forth about all the like savory cocktail experimentation we've been doing in our own kitchens and then it did not take long for someone to be like are we actually going to play on a savory cocktail fundraiser and everyone was like haha yes totally and then the thread died and when I saw the news yesterday I like went immediately back to that thread and I was like when are we planning this fundraiser how are we doing it for you know candidates we want to see elected and so all of that is to say that like I'm like okay like this is how I'm going to marry some very necessary activism with like weird other hobbies and like friends I want to hang out with. Use all the tools in the toolbox. 
all the tools in the toolbox. The thing about it that's exciting, though, is that they're, um, you're right, like, a lot of these groups have identified candidates that are awesome. I'm thinking about, um, you know, congressional candidate in Texas, MJ Hager. You should watch her ad. It's so badass, and it's great, and I hope that she wins also. Totally. And and I, I think, too, that, like, checking into states where you have a personal connection, like, maybe it's somewhere that you went to school, but you don't live there anymore. Like using that as like your kind of point of entry to finding out who's running and investing in them or like where you grew up if you don't live there anymore or, you know, where someone you love lives. And like, you know, thinking about the places that you have an investment in and you want to find candidates to support beyond just your district, I think could be really, really powerful. Especially if you live like in a very blue area and, you know, you always traditionally I felt like your vote didn't matter because everybody around you was going to vote the right way. It's a good time to adopt a district. Yeah, totally. And also to like, you know, to really to reconsider who you're supporting locally too. I mean, a lot of those historically blue districts, I mean, including California and New York, that's why this Joe Crowley race is the perfect example because he was in a solidly blue district. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who were a part of that establishment who were like, cool, cool, we'll autopilot with this guy. And it's like, actually, no, we can reconsider who we're electing, even in like firmly blue districts. And we can like push, push for candidates who, like I said, match the base better. Totally, 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 totally. Okay. I'm definitely depressed about a lot of things and a lot of things are going to be bad, but as we already established on this podcast, uh, you know, you got to do the political equivalent of gym tan laundry. So, Anne, what is the political equivalent of GTL? Donate, protest, midterms. Rinse, <laughs> Donate, protest, repeat. midterm elections. Yes. Rinse, repeat. <laughs> you know you want to. You know you can. And, yeah, and like I said, it does not have to be, like you know, teeth grittingly horrible. Like it does not have to be a grind. And yeah, I think it's like definitely a long road, but like, honestly, nothing feels worse to me. Like, like when the Kennedy news broke and I was, you know, in the middle of a work day. So I was like, found myself just immediately sucked into the like Twitter despair cyclone. Um, I like, it really took me a minute to be like, okay, actually at a certain point, I am not educating myself about what this means. I am just like screaming into the void with a bunch of other people. I have to turn this off and like, think about what I'm going to do. And that's the only way out of the despair. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You got to keep moving. Got to keep moving. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) I don't even know how to end this other than just, you're right. You're right. I don't, Yeah vote protest midterms and um, right and also, see you see you this weekend at the protest right oh my god 100 percent for reuniting families you got to be there. oh totally that was one of the things i did when i shut off twitter i was like i'm gonna work on my sign for the march on saturday i really i i thought about doing like an asylee is my bestie on one side <laughs> yay that's me i know i know um but I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't, didn't want to call you out without running it by you. But like, no, 100%. please, I'm, I'm so vain. Of course, I want to be on a protest sign. Please. I mean, <laughs> yes, maybe I've also because I'm crafty. I'm like, I love a protest sign. Like, this is a good way to work out some feelings. It's true. I, man, it's just everything is a lot right now. But you know what? 
one of the things that was really interesting in the um, RBG documentary that is still in theaters that you should still catch, take your mom, take your sister, take your bestie, it's great. But one of the points that she makes is that protest really influences court decisions because it gives them a barometer on where the people are at. And so this, like... Watching that and then going into this, this this new season of protests that we're all going into makes me feel good. It's like, actually, we do it for the catharsis, but we also do it because we want our legislators and, you know, our Supreme Court justices and whatever to pay attention. It's like this rage is real and this is where the people's minds are at. Totally. And if you are not someone who likes to be in crowds or for whatever reason is not able or like not you know, the type to protest in the streets. I think that it's also okay to take action on this issue in other ways to like to donate to organizations that are working on the border to figure out what kind of resources they need and help direct them there to throw your money and energy into organizing on behalf of a candidate. I think like the point is not there's only one way to do this or especially on an issue like family separation, like protest is great and it's important. And I think if you can be there, um, but if you can't, like, you know, do it your own way. Like, like this is something that you can truly make your own and um, and also do it with some accountability buddies. Do it with some friends. Okay. I like this. Action, action, action. I got to go work on my sign because I think I need to retire. Uh, we gave you hummus. Have some respect. This is a serious, this is a serious march. <laughs> so I feel like you need like a, you don't deserve this asylee, bitch. Like that's like, that's I, like no, you know America what? That's going to be, that's going to be the yeah. sign. It's like, you are so lucky. I stepped off that plane, bitch. Like, I know. Please. <laughs> please. That's right. Like, yeah. So we'll have to do like twinning signs with like, you know, America does not deserve my bestie slash you don't deserve me, America. I am here. Ugh. I am here as a benefit to you. <laughs> America is wiling. But, you know, we're all in this together, so hang in there. We promise the show will be lighter next week, even though the country will not be. But, uh, you know, like, get out this Saturday and support all the immigrants in your life. It's important. Oh, my God. Completely. All right, boo-boo. I will see you in the streets. Bye, boo. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Bleed, on the Call Your Girlfriend website. Uh, You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. That's right. They're lucky I stepped off that plane. Fuck this shit. (laughs) 